Good morning once again. As you're making your way back in to find a seat, let's go ahead and open our word. I'll open the Bible this morning. Let's go to God's Word. And uh, today we are rejoining that story which we uh, turned our attention to last week, uh, the story of Gideon. Uh, this is the second part. It's the second week in the second part of the Everyday People series. You remember way back when we did a everyday people series on the life of Ruth uh, and then last week we started uh, another chapter in that everyday people teaching series uh, looking at the story of Gideon and uh, how many just by a show of hands how many had heard the story of Gideon before okay how many heard that as a heard it as a child when you were in Sunday school okay how many have really spent time with it as an adult yeah, not so much. And that's kind of was my sense that uh, we hear about this a lot as a kid. We don't hear it as much about it as an adult. And there's really some important themes here. It's more than just about laying your fleece before the Lord. It's more than just about putting a torch in a, you know, trusting God for victory, things like that. There's actually some really human elements in this story. When you look at Gideon's life, you find like, man, this guy, there's some real texture to his life. He's real human. He's kind of like me. He's kind of like us sometimes. Uh, even in the face of God, being in the presence of God, still being able to doubt. Man, doubt is a powerful thing, isn't it? That Gideon can stand and be with God, the angel of the Lord, and still be like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't believe it. That's us, man. We can do that. I mean, I've never had the angel of the Lord standing there in all its blazing glory telling me that I'm going to be a mighty hero. And I'm like, hmm, probably not. <laughs> but this is, we, we read stories like Gideon's and it's like, I think we can find ourselves a little bit in that story. In so many ways, Scripture holds up a mirror to us. We see ourselves. And this is another opportunity for us to do just that. This is week number two in the Everyday People Gideon series. And today's message is called Thermopylae. Thermopylae. In the dramatic Battle of Thermopylae, which took place in 480 B.C., hordes of Persian soldiers bore down on the Spartan phalanxes. The Spartans and their king, who was named Leonidas, they knew that they were outnumbered. This was not in question. With the Persian army numbering in the millions, and the Greek forces only in the thousands, and the Spartan forces only in numbering 300, they were wildly outnumbered. And the outlook, of, uh, uh, the outlook was extremely grim. The possibility of victory was virtually non-existent. Has anyone heard this story before? About the 300 Spartans at the hot gates at Thermopylae? Yeah. However, in the face of these overwhelming odds, King Leonidas and the Spartans, um, they were confident. They were resolute in their mission. Their objective was not to defeat the Persians. They knew that probably wasn't possible. Their objective was not to defeat, defeat the Persians, but it was rather to buy time. To buy time to hold the hot gates, to hold that strategic pass of Thermopylae long enough to give the rest of the Greek army time to return to their homes and cities and prepare for defense against Persia. Now, seeing the inevitable defeat of the Spartans, King Xerxes of Persia, I mean, imagine, he's looking down with his millions upon this small army of, of Greek soldiers and these, this small uh, group of Spartans. 
He looks down and he says, you know what, here's an opportunity. He sent, King Xerxes of Persia sends an emissary to King Leonidas, offering him and his Spartans a way out. Basically offering them a dignified way to surrender. Like surrender, you don't have to die, you can surrender. If King Leonidas would retreat, and if King Leonidas would let the Persian army pass through the, 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 the pass of Thermopylae, their lives would be spared, the, the Spartans would be granted freedom, and they would forever be called friends of the Persian people. Which, to be called a friend of the Persian people was like to be given a pass into the Persian Empire. No one could touch you. You were a friend of the Persian Empire. This, in Xerxes' mind, was an attractive offer, and many historically had accepted. I think at some level Xerxes expected that the Greeks, and the Spartans in particular, would accept his offer of surrender. In addition to being called friends of the Persian people, the Greek army and the Spartans, they would be given land in Persia. And according to King Xerxes, this land in Persia was far better than any land in Greece. As you kind of imagine, it's like, our Persian land? Way better. You'd get some of it too. But King Leonidas, he refused. He wasn't even open to, to consideration. King Leonidas refused. He was in no way interested in laying down his arms. He was in no way interested in doing what would be considered betrayal of his own people. And more than that, it would be betrayal of his honor. I will not lay down my sword. I will not accept your offer. So uh, the emissary, uh, when King Leonidas refused the offer initially, the emissary that King Xerxes had sent became more forceful. He said, okay, well, if you won't do it willingly, I demand that you and the Spartans lay down your swords and surrender. Otherwise, you will face total destruction and your land will be wiped out by Persian hands. The Persians will come and destroy everything that you know and love. To this, Leonidas, King Leonidas responded that, well, if King Xerxes wants our swords, he must come and take them. He himself must come and take our swords. Come and take them, for we will not lay down our swords for anyone. Thus, uh, working another angle, King Xerxes sent another, a different Persian messenger uh, to a general named Dionikes. Dionikes. Uh, he was one of Leonidas's uh, most trusted generals, and this emissary was sent in hopes of brokering a similar arrangement working behind Leonidas's back because just maybe King Leonidas was just stubborn. Well, it wasn't just King Leonidas. All the Spartans were stubborn. None of the Spartans would lay down their swords. So he goes to Dionikis and says, hey, uh, if you give up, we'll, we'll do all this stuff for you. The messenger told Dionikis, if you don't retreat or surrender, our arrows will block out the sun. If you don't do this, understand, I have 5,000 archers right up there, 5,000, and they will fire so many arrows at you that the, the arrows will block out the sun. And so after a moment's consideration, General Dionikis famously responded, well then, we shall have our battle in the shade famous line. He's like, oh good, at least we get to fight in the shade. 
Thus, their defeat was ensured. <laughs> the, the wrath of Xerxes was uh, ensured and their doom was sealed. Their, their fate was sealed. But at least they would fight in the shade. Man, I love this mindset. It's like, all right, good. It's not about winning or losing. It's about honor. Man, if we get to fight, great. If we get to fight in the shade, excellent. The Spartans' valiant fight at the gates of Thermopylae this is the stuff of legends. You've heard this story before, right? This is the stuff of legends. The grit and determination of the Spartans, it has inspired generations of men and women. It has uh, put steel in the spines of armies who stand, who have stood in the face of overwhelming adversity. When faced with overwhelming odds, many have recalled the valor and the courage of Leonidas and his hoplite soldiers, his soldiers from Sparta, who refused to retreat, they refused to surrender. Their willingness to, to fight and to suffer and ultimately to die for what they believed in, it was remarkable. It was remarkable. More than death, the Spartans feared a life without sacrifice, a life without honor, and a life without valor. That was a life, that was a fate worse than death. To lose your honor, to not sacrifice for something that means something. It is said that Spartan mothers would call to their sons as they marched out of the cities. Spartan mothers would call to their sons as they departed for battles, come back with your shield or come back on your shield. Mothers to their sons, soldiers, come back with your shield. Or come back on your shield. Do not lose it. Do not lose your shield. Why? Because their shield represented their honor. So they would either come back alive with their shield or they would come back dead upon their shield, but they would not lose their honor. For the Spartans, honor was absolutely everything. For them, it was better to come home dead than to come home without honor. You know, I wonder, do we still feel that way? Do we still, that, feel, still feel that deep conviction to live and to stand for something, to fight and to die for honor, to sacrifice for something of infinite worth? You see, historically, humans have aspired to a life of meaning and purpose. I mean, this has been a historical trait of humans. We just have this intrinsic motivation to live for something, a teleological significance to why we're here. It's about something. It's for something. We want to live a life that is marked by courage, by dignity, and by honor. For most of human history, and for most people, the opportunity to be worthy of lining up alongside the Spartans, that would have been of highest honor. It's like, man, if I had the chance... I would fight with them. I would stand alongside Le I would stand with Leonidas. I would defend the gates. But for many reasons, ours is a, a peculiar time. For many reasons, both cultural and personal, too many of us have resigned ourselves to living lives of fear, of doubt and of defeat. We've accepted failure and we've uh, embraced this creeping sense of meaninglessness in our lives. Be it from, hurt pa uh, from past hurts, be it from painful experiences or exhaustion, destructive self-talk, maybe it's confusing messaging about your personal worth or your ability, maybe it's these contradictory and shifting uh, values in society that are just so incoherent and distracting.
whatever it is, we've come to believe that we don't have what it takes to really make any kind of difference. Have you sensed this in the world around us? A sense of hopelessness? A sense of being adrift? Lacking a foundation? No moral compass anymore? There's nothing, for many, there's nothing that we would really die for. I mean, we would not really die for it unless I had a really good deal on flat screens at Walmart on Black Friday. You know I mean, we, we don't die for things anymore. There's no sense of purpose or a cause that we would struggle and die in the face of overwhelming odds. None of us find a cause very easily that we'd say, hey, come and take it. Come and take it. I'll fight in the shade. Come on, bring it. You know, I mean, we don't get that anymore. That, that kind of goes counterculturally uh, in our current milieu. So <laughs> I've been looking to use milieu in a sermon, so there you have it. Uh, let's see. Uh, many who follow after Jesus Christ, they carry with them at the same time a, a deep-seated belief in their unworthiness. Many who've come to Christ, they still believe that they're trash that they're just saved by God's grace and they have nothing to offer. They don't have a part to play in what God's doing in the world. There's no vision that he might craft in their heart to be part of this new creation, this heaven come to earth even now. Many who follow after Jesus carry a deep-seated belief in their unworthiness. They have this default assumption that they could never be used by God. Let's talk about the past. Has anyone in the past felt that way? Have you in the past felt like, I'm too messed up? I'm damaged goods. I can't be used by God. It's only because God is nice that he saved me. You know, he has, I have no place on his team. I have no place on his bench. We have a belief that we would never be, could never be used by God. So as we return to the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through 8, we find circumstances seem to have led Gideon to hold some pretty dismal views of himself. He has become, seems to have been boxed in with some real, defeated thinking. His assumptions are that he's defeated, that he has nothing to offer. Him and his people, they're just overwhelmed, they're oppressed, and they're done. He has been given over to some defeated thinking. So when the angel of the Lord arrives and addresses Gideon as a mighty hero, let's hear how ironic that is. In this setting, how ironic it is when the angel of the Lord shows up, it's like, hey, mighty hero. Like, really? Really, mighty hero, huh? Mighty hero. The words of the angel of the Lord fall on deaf ears, on Gideon's deaf ears at first. They are unable to pierce these high walls of weary excuses and false assumptions that persist in Gideon's life at this point. So let's look at Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 24. However, today we're only going to focus on up through verse 16, but this just kind of gives you the scope of what, or the context of what we're looking at. So uh, Judges 6, verses 1 through 24. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Newsflash. This just in. Israel did evil in the Lord's sight. Uh, so the Lord, remember, this is the fourth time in just the first six chapters of Judges they've fallen away. Okay? Yeah. It's, what, it's kind of their, 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 their signature move. Okay. 
Ours too, we were not better. But anyway, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites, and he said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you now live, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if that you were fighting against one man. And Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. And he answered, I will stay here until you return. So Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat with a basket of flour. He baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat... Uh, in a basket, in the broth, in a pot. He brought them out and pre presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel God of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of his staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord repro replied, It is all right. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Ophrah in the land of the clan of Ebezar to this day. So cool things happening in this passage. Maybe some things you're not as quite familiar with. What's funny though is our sense of like time and our patience is way less than Bible times. I mean, it's like, hey, BRB. I'm getting my offering. But then what's he go do? He like has to go and like slaughter a lamb, <laughs> prepare it, cook it, makes bread. I mean, his angel of the Lord's like, Facebook, you know, They're like, what in the world? I mean, this had to be hours and hours. Like, oh, I'll be right back. You know, hold on. That's kind of funny. Uh, but then uh, something else was funny too, but I don't remember what it was. Um, oh yeah, you can't win. 
He's like, why doesn't God come and deliver us? Then God comes and he's like, oh, I'm doomed. <laughs> I'm doomed. I actually saw you. <laughs> and it's like, ah, boxed in by fear. Okay. So anyway, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 is what we're looking at first here. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash in the clan of Abiezer. Man, I've got to get better at saying that name. Abiezer. Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So last week we talked about how Gideon's circumstances, uh, when encountered by God, uh, is telling. Gideon is doing what? He's threshing his grain where? In the bottom of a wine press. He is in the bottom of a wine press, a place absolutely not designed for threshing wheat because he's hiding. He's hiding in fear from the Midianites. Everything about how Gideon has been living, everything he believed about himself and about his future, it was dictated by his circumstances. And that's pretty easy to let happen, isn't it? I mean, when it happens for so long, and the threat is so real, the circumstances are so heavy, man, we can start living as if, man, this is reality. And this will always be reality. So our circumstances start to dictate how we live our lives. So when the angel of the Lord comes and calls him a mighty hero, he is surprised. But if you pick up on this, it doesn't take a Bible scholar, but you can pick up on him being a little bit cheeky too, right? He's like, right. I'm surprised that you call me a mighty hero. Um, he was a little bit caught off guard because what the angel says Hey, mighty hero, that seems about as far from the truth as, as possible. I'm not a mighty hero. Mighty heroes aren't freshing their grain in the bottom of a wine press. I think you have the wrong person. Gideon had come to believe that he was powerless. He was powerless to change anything. Living under Midian oppression, uh, under their constant harassment, he was defeated. He had accepted that he was defeated. Little did he know that God had chosen him. As unlikely as that seems, God had chosen him to be an instrument of deliverance. Did anyone hear echoes of God's conversation with Moses in this transaction? I mean, I see a parallel here. Likewise, Gideon had been chosen as God's instrument of deliverance for Israel. God had set Gideon apart to truly become a mighty hero. What God was saying had more to do with Gideon's future than his present. Sometimes what God says to us has more to do with where He's leading us than where we are right now. We just have to believe and follow. If God calls you a mighty hero, you might not be a mighty hero right now. But do you believe that God could make you into that? Could call you into situations and circumstances where you could be His instrument of deliverance in that situation? Man, can we believe that? Could Gideon believe that? Just like when Moses was called to lead God's people out of Egypt, Gideon likewise struggled to believe what God was saying. In the presence of God's angel, and in the presence of God's very words being spoken to him, he responded with timidity, but also with a full range of excuses. Man, I've got, I've got like, I feel like I'm like, I've got a, a, a weapons belt full of excuses. I can pull anything, you know, like, oh, I got this. Oh, what about this excuse? Oh, you know, bandolier of extra excuses up here. Yeah, I've got them. Is anyone else like quick drama growl when it comes to excuses about why it can't be me? Why I can't do that? You know, God, pff, what do you know? <laughs> you know. He responds with timidity and a range of excuses, yet the angel of the Lord persists, knowing that this mighty hero will indeed 
be used by God in a powerful way, despite what Gideon is capable of believing in that moment. God is not limited to what you are capable of believing right now. Isn't that good to know? He isn't limited to my self-perception. What I think I can do, what I uh, feel like I'm able to offer to God, God is not limited by that. And I'm glad. I'm glad. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and headed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. There's a real transition happening in these two verses. First, he says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's like, Oh, great. Now, now God is with us? He remembers. He knows the story of his people, of Israel. He's like, now? Now God is with us after seven long years? Now you're with us? God took his sweet time, didn't he? I mean, why hasn't he been with us before now? Surely he knows what has been happening to us. Why have the Lord's miracles been so painfully absent? If there was a situation, a time when God's miracles would have been handy, it's now. And they've not been happening for seven years. Now, interestingly, the, the Lord does not answer. The angel does not answer his questions. He doesn't say, oh, it's because of this. <laughs> Clearly you know, Gideon. No, he just moves on. He moves on. And it reminds me of uh, uh, Elijah's complaint to God in the, in, on Mount Horeb in the cave. He's like, I'm the only one left. Everyone's trying to kill me. No one's being faithful. And God doesn't even, he's like, wait, what? Why are you here? And he lays out his complaint again. He's like, okay, go back the way you came. Anyone familiar with that story with Elijah? It's crazy. God doesn't answer the question directly. Neither does he do it with Job. He doesn't do it with Gideon either. He doesn't answer the question or the complaints directly, but instead he sends him. He sends him out uh, on a mission. He's like, hey, my answer is this. I'm sending you on God's mission for your life. I'm, I'm sending you out into that defining experience, that which will shape the rest of your life. I'm sending you out. So two things happen here in these verses 13 and 14 that are really interesting that shouldn't be missed. First, did you notice the change in the address of the angel of the Lord? In verse 14, suddenly the angel of the Lord is no longer the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 14. It says, Then the Lord turned to him. What's going on here? It's no longer identified the angel of the Lord. It's now uh, the Lord himself. And in theology, anytime there's a pre-incarnate visitation of God himself, many think that this is a pre-incarnational uh, appearance of Jesus himself. So what if Jesus is there talking to Gideon at this point in history, raising him up, getting him to believe something, that God could use him to affect change, bring deliverance? That's crazy to me. So anyway, suddenly it's the Lord. And then the second thing we need to notice, that it's God is the one giving the necessary strength to Gideon. Does Gideon have the strength? Does he know he has it? No. He doesn't believe he has it at all, but he's like, go in the strength that you have. Now, the New Living Translation doesn't really give a very well-nuanced uh, 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 delivery of that sentence, but it should really be read not as, go with the strength you have. It should be interpreted as, go with the strength the Lord has given you, or go with the strength you now have. 
So it's not about that. It's not where you've been, where you are now, or what you believe. I am giving you the strength you need to go and to accomplish that which I've called you to. So go in the strength you now have. Gideon's strength going forward would come from God's presence with him, God's calling upon his life. God was calling Gideon out of darkness. He was calling uh, Gideon metaphorically and literally out of the wine press out of that pit and sending him out with strength into an ordained future. He was sending him out to rescue God's people and to lead all of them back to the worship of the one true God. So let's look at verses 15 and 16. But Lord, Gideon replied, after all that, but Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh and I'm the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you. I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So, get this. I mean, despite this remarkable face-to-face -face encounter with the angel of the Lord come the Lord himself, Gideon still manages to cling to his doubts, cling to his excuses. He's still convinced in his inability, he's still convinced about his inability to be God's champion. He's still unconvinced that he could actually be a mighty hero called by God. He says, look, God, let me lay it out here for you. I am the weakest man in my weak family, which is part of the weakest clan from the weakest tribe of Israel, which happens to be the, currently happens to be the weakest nation on the planet. Do you see the pattern here? I'm weak all around. I'm really weak. And to that, God says, Gideon, you are correct. You're right. Absolutely weak. It's true, Gideon, you are so weak. But your ability and your strength, it isn't what matters here. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Stay tuned. You'll hear that later. When Paul writes about this in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when Paul's like, oh, I've got this thorn in my flesh, I've got this hang-up, this, this false assumption about myself, or this, this besetting sin, whatever it was, like, God, take it away, take it away. How can I be used if I've still got this struggle? I've still got this pain. He's like, no, man, I'm not taking it away. This creates the context in which I do my best work in you. I'm going to keep you weak because in your weakness, you're made strong. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. This theme stretching from Gideon all the way to Paul, all the way to us. What does that tell us? We don't have to be strong. We don't have to bring our, we don't have to, 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 to marshal all of our resources and abilities and bring them to God and see if it measures up. God looks at you and says, no, I can use you in your absolute weakness. In your abject despair, I can reach in and, and launch you into a new future. Yeah, you're weak, but in your weakness, I am strong. What matters is that I am with you, Gideon. And because of that, all Midian will fall as one man. So when you go to battle against those who have been oppressing you, they will fall as if one man. Imagine a boxer catching a left hook to the chin, just falling like Glass Joe in the old uh, Nintendo boxing game. Was that Glass Joe? Anyway, um, imagine just catching a left hook right in the chin and just like, shooting the lights out. Midian will fall as one man. 
The important issue here then for you, Gideon, the important issue then here for you today, can you believe what God has called you to? And will you obey it? Can you believe it? And will you obey it? I mean, we'll spend the rest of our lives sometimes working through that. Can you believe it? And will you obey it? I've told you this before, I'm a lot like Gideon. I think he must be an ENFP or a Enneagram 4 or whatever. I think we're a lot alike. I'm a lot like Gideon. I am given to easily believing all the reasons why I can't be used by God and why I can't do what He is calling me to do. Even when God Himself has told me otherwise, uh, by His own mouth, told me what I am capable of in Him. Even when I hear it in His Word, even when it's confirmed through His Holy Spirit in my life or through godly friends, I still retreat to my excuses sometimes. I'm a lot like Gideon. Even if God Himself <laughs> were to stand in front of me, right in front of me, and speak directly to me, I might find a way like Gideon to deny it and to doubt it. Anyone else? Anyone else see some commonalities? I'm like, hey, brother. Yeah, me and Gideon. But thankfully... Jesus is patient. Jesus is patient with Gideon. Jesus is patient with Israel. Jesus is patient with you, and he's patient with me. Jesus is patient just like he was patient with Gideon. God sees, here's the thing, God sees the whole scope of your life. God, you see this one day, and you see those what lies in the past, but you can't see it all, but God can. God sees the whole scope of my life, and He, he sees all the things I have done. He sees all that I am doing, but more than that, He sees all that I will do, and it's the same for you too. It's the same for you, for me, for Gideon. God has seen the end of all things. God regards us not so much based on what we've done. God regards us not so much on who we are now, but based on what we are capable of in Him. And He's motivated by His plans to use us for His glory. How does that make you feel? That when He looks at you, He sees so much more. Not just your potential, but His potentiality in you. That's what He sees. That's amazing to me. What God believes about you is foundational. What God believes about you is the most true thing about who you are. The most real thing about who you are and what you can do in this life. Guys, hold on to that truth. It's not what you believe about you that matters. It's what God believes about you. And just like with Gideon, sometimes that blows our mind. Sometimes that's a stretch for us to get there. But hold on to it. Let that be the foundation under your feet. What God believes about you is foundational. It is the most important thing, the most truly true and most really real. Can you move toward that belief today? That's the work we have today. That's your homework, right? Can we move toward that reality today, toward that belief? That's what Gideon had to do. He had to put one foot in front of the other and like, all right, I'm coming out of the wine press now. I'm leaving it behind. I'm going to be exposed. I'm going to be visible. I'm going to be identified with this mission. Here we go. He had to take a step out of the wine press, and so do we. The future depends on us being willing to believe something new. We have to believe something new. We have to find a new sort of courage and a new depth of belief. We have to be willing to take that first step, that step into our God-given calling. 
And therein lies that tension, right? It's in that first step. We must get to the place where we are willing to go where God sends us and do what He asks us to do. What is that place for you? You know more about that wine press that you're in right now than I do. But you sense where God's calling you to go. The work God wants to do in you. May God stand before you today and speak those words of, of, of truth to you, of confidence in you, as He calls you to be a mighty hero for Him. Where is, it God calling, where is it that God is calling you to go? Even if it seems reckless, even if it seems foolish, even if we are hopelessly outnumbered, it, we must be courageous enough to go where God is sending us, even if it means we come home with our shield or we come home on our shield. Even if I lose everything, I will go where God sends us. There is no greater honor than the honor of being used by God in this life. So stand in that honor. Rise to the challenge of that honor. If God is with us, we are unstoppable. If God is with us, our enemies will fall as if one man. We don't fight the Midianites. But man, there's plenty of Midianites in my mind. Man, there's fear, there's doubts, there's false assumptions, there's anxiety, sense of inadequacy, lots of things that war against our ability to believe what God believes about you. And so I pray that today we would stand in the honor of being used by God and that we would watch our enemies fall today. Let's pray. God, thanks for the confidence we find in your word. God, this isn't meant to be just a feel-good sermon. This is supposed to be a rallying cry to shake us from our complacency and from our defeated thinking. God, that we would return to a place of, uh, of even fledgling faith, that we'd have enough faith to take that first step out of the wine press, sensing that you've called us to be a part of your redemptive, transformative, renewing work in the world, and that we do have a part to play, that we can be used to do uh, infinitely more than we can even ask or imagine that you're with us, that your Holy Spirit empowers us, and that you believe things about us that we can't even in our current situation begin to believe. But God, may we hear your words today. May we start to see what you see. And may we start to live in confidence that you are with us, that it's your strength. It's your strength, it's your vision, it's your victory. All I bring is my fear, my doubt, my weakness. But in that, you are strong. So God, I look to you. God, may, may I sense, may we sense that there is no greater honor than being with you and being used by you, sent out into the world to reveal and represent Jesus Christ. God, what an honor. I want that honor to define my life. I want to be willing, courageous enough to go out against overwhelming odds in the world to stand for what is right, what is true, what is lovely, and what is pure. God, I pray that you'd speak truth to our hearts today. God, you know each person here. You know their story. You know what they're thinking. You know those false assumptions. God, I pray that you would break through today. I pray that you would stand before them, that you would speak to them, that Jesus himself would call to them. Lord, where is it you're calling each of us today? Lord, the need is great. Our land is beset. 
by the Midianites, by fear, by doubt, by confusion, by dehumanizing beliefs. God, I pray that we would go out confident that you're with us and that you can bring victory. So God, be with us, we ask. I pray for my friends who've been following Jesus. I pray that you would infuse them with a new sense of purpose, meaning of courage. I pray for my friends who've never followed Jesus. I pray that they'd hear the invitation that God has a plan for your life. That God believes in you and can use you to be a part of his work in the world. God, I pray that we would all respond. That we would all respond in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to worship a bit. And this is an important time to just sit with the Lord. Man, have that conversation. You know you. <laughs> you know what your wine press has been like. You know what it's like when Jesus comes and says, Hey, I believe that God can use you. I believe there's a work for you to be doing. I'm sending you to do it. You know what that runs up against inside of you. So let's lay that before the Lord. If you need to pray with somebody, because this can be pretty sensitive. This can be pretty hard. So grab those around you. I'll be at the back. Curtis is back there too. You can pray with us. Uh, Christy's up here. Um, here's the thing. You've got like five minutes here of uninterrupted time to just sit with the Lord and be honest, to listen closely and to hear Him speak. So make the most of this opportunity, okay? Okay. <laughs>